Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks. We're teaching out of the book of Acts today, Acts chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and turn there. I'm going to teach from 1 through 11 uh, to conclude our Yes, He Did series, which was our Easter series, which is weird because you would think that an Easter series would end on Easter. But you know what? The resurrection power that we have in Christ Jesus is made available to us because, yes, He did send His Holy Spirit to us, which is what I want to talk about today, that, yes, He did send His Holy Spirit and I think this is horribly important. Not only are we Resurrection Sunday on Easter, we should be resurrection people every single day of our lives, declaring the resurrection, declaring the work of Christ Jesus, so that other people might have the, the knowing of their hope that we have. Amen? And so I want to talk about that. And I'm going to do that first by reading a couple of verses from Acts and then to kind of give some context it says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, this is Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Theophilus, just so you know, is somebody that contracted Luke to write both his gospel and the book of Acts. So he's, he's reporting back to the guy about what he's seen. He said, the first account I composed, which is the book of Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so I, I say those verses just to set some context for you. As you know, or if you don't know, know now, Jesus had about three and a half years of earthly ministry. He stepped into his ministry upon his baptism, temptation in the desert, came out of the tent, desert declaring repent for the kingdom of heaven is, is near and continued his ministry, picked his apostles and went about doing what God called him to do. The reason he is here to redeem mankind. And so for three and a half years, the disciples, the apostles got to witness this. They watched him perform miracles, heal the sick, teach with authority, oust religious the religious elite align the hearts of the lost with the hearts of God. Over and over and over, we see God doing through Christ Jesus wonderful and beautiful things. Until ultimately, at the end of his physical life, we see him unjustly tried, crucified, and placed in the ground. Now, this must have been devastating. Three and a half years, walk beside the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, the word by which all things were created and all things are sustained, and their mind gone. Had to have been horrible for them. But then Easter, and their hope was renewed. And so you see this high of ministry, this low of death, this high of resurrection. And then Jesus, after 40 days, is leaving again. After having presented himself to upwards of 500 people, not only does it say it in here, it, 
it more specifically says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. Paul's talking. He said, and he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one ultimately untimely born, he appeared to me also. So he says, listen, I, Jesus saw more than 500 people after he was raised. There is evidence and proof that Jesus existed by more than 500 people after he, say, after he was raised. And for 40 days, he taught. And now he's leaving. He's going up into back to heaven. He's being ascended to the right hand of the Father, having performed all the work that he could possibly perform and the low again. But there's something we forgot, or they forgot, I think, is that he said that he would send a comforter to them that he would send a helper, a paraclete is the word, one who comes alongside, a counselor, and they even told them that it would be better for you if I leave. Because as long as he's bound by flesh, which he was in Christ Jesus, he was present where he was present. But when he went back up to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, his spirit is with all of us, and in all of us at all places at all times. And that's to our benefit. You wanted to ask Jesus a question during his life, you had to go find Jesus. You want to ask Jesus a question now, you just ask Jesus. Amen? Because his spirit lives inside of us. And so they seem to have forgotten this. So Jesus is talking to them. And he says this. And starting in verse 5, or verse 4, gathering them together, highs, lows, highs, lows, now he's leaving. He gathers them together. He commanded that. I, I see a picture in my mind. I'm sorry. A picture in my mind, him gathering like a chicken gathers or chicks. say, it's okay. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, what he had told them they were promised before, which he said, you heard of me, heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They said, they said also, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way in which you watched him go into heaven. And that is from the sky and in a time you don't know. And so I want to make three points from this message. This, yes, he did send his Holy Spirit and why he sent his Holy Spirit and the 
events surrounding him holding, sending the Holy Spirit, the how and why. The very first point I want to make today is that he told them, he commands them to wait for the Holy Spirit. Do you think God's all-powerful? Do you think God's capable of doing whatever God wants to do? Whenever he sees fit to do it? No matter how unreasonable or how uncertain it may seem to us, God is capable of doing whatever it is he sets his heart and mind to do. Right? So why do they have to wait? Couldn't he just say, I'm leaving, here's the Holy Spirit, work it out. Do what I've taught you. But he didn't tell them that. He didn't just drop the Holy Spirit on them. He said, go and wait. And so there has to be a question. This should cause us to ask, if we know that God is capable of all things, then we must then ask the question, why wait? And I think there's three reasons why Jesus wanted them to wait. The first one is, is, is well, all of them, is to test them. He wanted them to wait to test them. The first thing he wanted to test is their faith. Here's the definition of faith according to the Word of God. The assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. That seems awful spiritual. What does that mean? This is what that means. That God has told you something and you believe it so completely that you grab a hold of it so tightly, it's though you already, it's as though you already possess it. That's faith. I'm going to heaven. I have faith in that I'm going to heaven, and I'm holding on to that faith, that hope right now, as though it already exists. Amen. That's what faith is: holding on to it as though it already exists, even when you can't see it. He wanted to make sure that they had faith to do what he told them to do. We are called to be people of faith. It's God's habit to test our faith. Did you hear me? It's God's habit to test our faith. But in the testing of our faith, we are rewarded for our faith. This is interesting to me. If you'll look through the scripture, you'll see those who had faith were rewarded. Abraham had faith and was given a son and a covenant. Moses had faith and was given the law and the leadership of God's people. David had faith and was given protection and the throne he was promised, a throne that ultimately bore the lineage of the Messiah. Noah had faith and was given life, not death, not judgment. God tests our faith to make sure that we truly are, regardless of our circumstance, our environment, what's happening all around us, what our eyes see, that we hold true to, the, to what he says. Because let me tell you, what your eyes see aren't always true. What your heart tells you isn't always true. Your heart is deceptive above all things. I love people that say, man, I just know my heart's telling me to do such and such. Well, you better confirm that with the word. Because your heart will lie to you. Amen? And then once you test it with the Word, then go find somebody that's got more spiritual experience than you and confirm it through them. And then once you confirm it through them, then what is the Spirit telling you? Does everybody hear me? So He wants to test our faith. And in our faith, test our obedience, which is the second test I think that He wants from us. He wanted to see that they would be obedient to do what he said do. 
And most of them weren't. I told you, I read you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that over 500 people saw Jesus. 120 stayed for the upper room experience. That means 380 people missed out because they weren't obedient to what God told them to do. What are we missing out on because we're not being obedient to what God tells us, tells us to do? Pastor Leonard says it all the time, and I love it. Your blessing lies on the other side of your obedience. What are you wanting? What are you expecting? What are you believing for God? What do you have faith in? Let me tell you, whatever you have faith in isn't going to come to fruition unless you're willing to be obedient according to the word of God. We serve an if-then God. Did you know that? I've told you that a thousand times. If I declare with my mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, believe it in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then what? I shall be saved. Everywhere there's a promise, there's an if-then. It's an if-then promise. If you do this, then I will do this. Whether you like that or not, whether that upsets your appetite for spiritual things is beyond me, or, or I honestly could care less, because that's the truth. We've been called to be obedient. Let me read some things to you to make this as clear to you as I possibly can. My favorite verses on obedience come out of John chapter 14. And most of you know this because you've heard me say it a thousand times. But the word's always true. 14.15 says, if you love me, if, if what? If you love me. How many of you, and this isn't a rhetorical question, I would have you answer with an amen. How many of you love the Lord? Amen. Then you will keep my commandments. There's no gray area there. There's no, you'll keep the commandments that are comfortable to you. You will do what, you're, what you want to do. You will do what you think is best to do. It says you will keep my commandments. The question is, do we have his commandments? Yes, we have his commandments in the word of God. If you're keeping the word of God, you prove that you love God. Don't tell me you love God and then do whatever it is you want to do. I'm not saying you, can't, you don't slip and fall. You might not make a mistake. But the word of God says repent. And so in that obedience, I restore myself back to a place of relationship. Amen? Everybody all right? But then it goes on in verse 21. He says, he who has my commandments, and we've already established that we do, and keeps them, which we've established is necessary, is the one who loves me. This is Jesus speaking. So you want to prove that you love Jesus? Keep his commandments. And he who loves me will be loved by the Father. You want to be loved by God? then be ensured that Jesus loves you and you're ensured that Jesus loves you when you keep his commandments. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Most underrated verse in the scripture. I'm convinced of it. Because we still live in a world where we do what we feel like we want to do. I get people come into my office. I hear people at the coffee shop all around town. They know I'm a pastor, so they'll come up and be like, man, I got this thing and... Man, every time I pray, I feel like my prayers hit this brass ceiling, fall back in my lap. I search the scriptures, and God's not showing himself to me. I, I can't seem to understand what I'm reading. And I ask him, I said, are you obedient to what you know? It's the only question you ask them. 
Are you being obedient to what you know right now? Because you have no promise that God will reveal himself greater to you if you're not already being obedient to what he has already revealed to you. You want more of God? Keep God's commandment. I'm not going to give you step three in a five-step plan if you haven't done step one yet. Or if you haven't done step two yet. Everybody all right? I want God to disclose himself to me. Because what I know right now is wholly insufficient for what I believe God has for me. And I think most of you would agree the same. It continues in verse 23, And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, which is my commandments, and my Father will love him, and he will come, to, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So not only do we prove our love, not only does God love us, not only does God Jesus love us, not only does he disclose himself to us, but he will make his abode with us. You know what that means? It means his spirit will reside in you. You will live in him and him in you all through obedience. What's he testing? Why did they have to wait? Because he needed to make sure they were obedient so that he could reveal what he had for them. How would you like to be one of that 380 that didn't make it, that walked out of the room an hour before the spirit fell? God, that'd be worst, wouldn't it? Here's the thing. They didn't know how long they were going to be there. Nowhere in the book of Acts does it say that go into the upper room, back to stay in Jerusalem, and 37 days I'm going to be there, and two years I'm going to be there, and 10 days I'm going to be there. It's just open-ended, do what I tell you. Oh, that's a whole other lesson right there. How about you don't worry about how long it's going to take? How about you just do what I tell you? I preach. I'm going to preach at some point. That's good. So, but anyway, he tested our obedience. And in our obedience, he tests our unity. I've already told you the 10 days, 120 people. Let me tell you the heart and the condition of the disciples before the Holy Spirit failed. Luke twenty two twenty four, and there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them would be regarded as the greatest. And the disciples and the apostles were concerned about who was going to be the coolest, the biggest, the most important. Jesus needed them to wait to get rid of that. Because let me tell you, disunity disempowers. And it distracts us from what God calls us to be. He needed them to get rid of that me and make it all about us. Imagine being in the upper room with 120 sweaty dudes in the desert. I really want you to dig into that. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be crowded. I've been in that in what they believe is the upper room, and that's 120 people, a lot of a lot of a lot of people for that space. Now imagine the heat, the smell. I'm not just talking about body odor. I'm talking about dudes <laughs> in 10 days crowded together, arguing, fussing. 
Jesus needed to make sure that they understood their personal proclivities and preferences were irrelevant. And so he put them in an environment that caused them to have to set that aside. And it wasn't according to the word until they were in all together in one place and what? In one accord did the Holy Spirit fall. You know why I'm convinced the church has become largely impotent? Because we've lost our ability to be unified. We forgot that we're one body, one spirit, one baptism, one Lord. We've forgotten all of that. And we decide that we're going to be who we want to be. And we're going to push the agendas that we want to push. Let me tell you, Proverbs, I think chapter 6, says there's six things that the Lord hates. God, the Lord can't hate nobody. He's, he is love. No, he can't, and he does according to the word of God. You know what one of those things are? People who sow discord. People who create disunity. So he needed to make sure he purged people of all of that before he sent their, his Holy Spirit to them. Our faith has been tested. Our obedience has been tested. And our unity has been tested. And then he sends the Spirit. Which is the second point I want to make to you today. Then they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were empowered first to be witnesses. Verses 6 through 8 reads like this. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you will be restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You've been empowered by to be witnesses. Everybody say witnesses. Witnesses to what? Witnesses to the grace, the provision, the love, the glory, the majesty of the God that we serve. We have been given the Holy Spirit for one primary purpose, to be witnesses. Now, there's a secondary purpose I'm going to talk to you about in just a moment. But the primary purpose is to declare Jesus Christ to have the power and the strength and the ability that no matter what's happening around us, no matter who's pressing against us, what struggles we might have to face or what persecution they may be, we will still be empowered to be witnesses. Amen? Now, let's talk about the word power. You guys have heard, I'm certain, or if you haven't, most of the time you hear this verse preached, some pastor spends some significant amount of time talking about the word comes from the root word or the Greek word dunamis, which is the Greek word used for dynamite, which means explosive power. Then you inevitably have, have a pastor up there, you've been given power, you've been given, and he gets all excited, he starts jumping around, he wants to show you how much power he has. But it means more than that. The true definition is inherent power. Power that resides in a person by virtue of their nature. Once you get a hold of that. By virtue of your nature. When you're saved, are you the same nature you were before you got saved or are you a new creation? So you've been given power according to who you belong to to declare who you belong to. By your very nature, 
This is who you should be. There should be no conflict in us. People, I don't want to offend nobody. I don't want to hurt nobody's feelings. Let me tell you, if I'm going to offend somebody, it's going to be somebody on the street. It's not going to be the God that stands that sits on the throne. I'm going to declare the gospel message. You know why? Because somebody loved me enough to tell me the gospel message 17 years ago. And didn't care if I was offended by it. And those of you who know I got saved under Pastor Maury Davis, no, he doesn't care if I was offended by it. Let me tell you, love people enough to offend them wherever you are. Because the only hope that they have is in the only name in heaven and earth that can save them, which is Jesus. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That Jesus is the only solution to our sin nature because he became sin so that we wouldn't be answerable for the sin that we've committed upon repentance. Amen. And the least he deserves from us is to declare him Lord. That's what we're called. That's why we've been given the spirit to be witnesses. I, it's not that I don't love a, just a really rock solid, super spiritual message, but that's, this isn't it. This is a nuts and bolts. You've been given the spirit to tell people about Jesus message. Amen? So tell people about Jesus. Where you are and all around the world. The Bible says in Jerusalem, that is our Lebanon. Judea, Samaria, that is regionally. And to the very ends of the earth is exactly that. To the ends of the earth. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, fill your mouth with the name of Jesus. People are dying and going to hell. Amen? How much do you have to hate them? to not tell them about the Jesus you know? That's a tough question. But it's one I'm certain we don't ask ourselves enough. I, am, I get asked pretty regular, how do I stay so excited after 17 years of being saved? Because I remember not being saved. And I remember that in Christ Jesus, my whole life has been changed. And I have hope that I can hold on to right now as though it already exists because it does already exist. And the reason I'm so passionate about making sure I proclaim that message to whoever will listen is because they're dying and going to hell if someone doesn't tell them. How will they know unless someone tells them? Amen? We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That means we weren't at one time reconciled to God. We were in conflict with God. But somebody loved us enough to tell us the truth and reconciled us through Christ Jesus to God. And now it's our responsibility to do the same. Amen? But we've been empowered for something else too, and that's righteousness. People aren't going to listen to the message of your mouth if the, what you're doing with your body and your actions and your words don't match. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment. You know what that means? 
That means he convicts us of our sin that we might come to salvation. He convicts us of righteousness so that we might continue in that righteousness that was given to us and repent accordingly when we fall and for judgment so that we keep our eye on the prize. Amen? That's our responsibility, to witness and to walk in righteousness, which means I have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. The things I want to do, Paul says, the things I, I want to do, I don't do. Some of the things I don't want to do, I do. Who's going to save me from this mess? And he says, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Jesus saved me from this mess. And every time I fall, I go before him and he saves me again. You know what I found out very quickly? is that people who give their life to the Lord here, drug addicts, alcoholics, whatever sin they're wrapped up in, when they get up short of a miraculous delivery, they get up, they're still drug addicts and alcoholics and whatever it is they're tied up in. But you know what? It's our responsibility and theirs to walk alongside of them, show them the truth while the Spirit reveals the truth to them so that they might walk in the newfound righteousness that they've been given in Christ Jesus. Amen? And we expect people to get saved to be perfect. I ain't perfect now. I've been saved 17 years. I'll be honest with you, I expect a couple more amens than that, but I appreciate it. So, We've been empowered. But my final point, and probably the one that is most challenging, is that we must be moved by the Holy Spirit. In verse 9, 10, and 11, it says, After he had said these things, he was lifted up, while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him, them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. There's two words here that mess me up a little bit. It says, as they were gazing into the sky. And rightfully so. Could you imagine seeing such a thing? Seeing the Savior being raised and then enveloped by clouds? Man, I'd be straining my eyes. Like, I'd... I'd it would be difficult for me to take my eyes off, off the skyline. And so it's rightful that we gaze. We should gaze at the glory of who Christ Jesus is every day. But you know what? There's another word in the context of this message, and that's go. We've been obligated to go, too. So here's the challenge. We've been obligated. We've been challenged to keep one eye on Jesus 
and one eye on the lost. To gaze at him and go so that other people might know him too. Amen. And then to live a life that causes them to want to listen to us. And so I'm going to issue a challenge. And I don't want you to stand up if, if this challenge isn't sincere in your heart, your acceptance of this challenge. I have a daughter that doesn't know the Lord. And that breaks my heart. You know what I've come to realize? That I'm probably not the one going to be able to lead her to the Lord. My voice is too familiar to her. But one of you might be able to. One of her friends might be able to. And so my challenge is, not just in regard to my daughter, but all those who are unsaved, is to challenge you to keep one eye on Jesus and keep one eye on the lost so that you might be the voice that they hear that causes them to declare the name of Jesus. If you're willing to be that person, to say, I am going to keep my eye on Jesus, but I'm also going to keep my eye on the ones Jesus is after, would you stand up so I can pray over you that the Holy Spirit give you the ability and opportunity for that? Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you. God, I thank you that you haven't left us to our own devices. God, that you have empowered us by your Holy Spirit. That you gave us your son, Jesus, so that we might be righteous. So that we might be able to boldly proclaim his goodness to the people that we come into contact with. God, I pray in Jesus' name, that mighty, glorious, magnificent, beautiful name, that you give us a conviction, a new, strong, powerful need and desire to keep our eye on you and the lost. God, give us the opportunity to come into contact with someone that doesn't know who you are and the boldness to declare who you are to them. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you give us eyes to see them ears to hear them, the nuance of their speech, the look on their face. All of these things are indicators that they're struggling, that they're hurting. Let us pay attention to them so that they might ultimately know you and pay attention to you too. God, I ask that you put your hand on every person in this room. Give them a boldness like they've never had. Refresh and renew the Holy Spirit in them. Paul told Timothy, fan into flame the gift that's been given you by the laying on of hands. And so God, I ask that you fan into flame the gift that has been given to all of us in your Holy Spirit through Christ Jesus. God, we worship you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.